ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Does new evidence of cosmic design fascinate you? If so, check out the new book from philosopher of science and best-selling author Stephen Meyer, Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. The science is airtight, and at the same time it's written so that non-scientists can follow the argument and see the many amazing ways modern physics and cosmology point to a grand designer of life and the universe. Check out the glowing endorsements from Nobel laureate Brian Josephson and others at returnofthegodhypothesis.com. That's returnofthegodhypothesis.com. That site also gives you links to Amazon and other booksellers that are selling the book. Pick up your copy today at returnofthegodhypothesis.com. Hello, I'm Andrew McDermott. Today my guest is Richard Weikart, Emeritus Professor of History at California State University Stanislaus and a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is author of From Darwin to Hitler, Hitler's Ethic and the Death of Humanity. His most recent book, 2016's Hitler's Religion, shows that Hitler was a pantheist who deified nature and based his morality on the laws of nature, especially the Darwinian struggle for existence. Richard, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Well, recently you wrote a three-part series at evolutionnews.org about a new book recently released from Cambridge University Press called Social Darwinism, authored by Jeffrey O'Connell and Michael Ruse. First, can you define for us what is actually meant by the term social Darwinism? Yeah, the way they define it in the book is the attempt to take evolutionary theory and to apply it to political and social policies and and ideas. And the way it usually worked out, especially in the late 19th and early 20th century, and sometimes in the book they refer to this as traditional social Darwinism, was by applying the Darwinian struggle for existence to human society so that humans had to be in competition for scarce resources and that this then was what brought about evolutionary progress. Okay. Now, this is a short book. It's part of their Elements of the Philosophy of Biology series at Cambridge. What can you tell us about the book's authors, philosopher Jeffrey O'Connell and philosopher of science Michael Ruse? That's a name we've heard a lot in these circles. Are these authors well-suited to address this subject? Well, Michael Roos has written pretty extensively about the history of Darwinism. Uh, He is a philosopher, but he's written a lot about the historical uh, underpinnings of Darwinian theory. Jeffrey O'Connell, however, who's listed first uh, in the author, and I don't know what the significance of that is necessarily, is a recent PhD student of Roos's who wrote a PhD dissertation on Nietzsche. So I'm not sure exactly how much expertise he has uh, in the field. Huh. So uh, someone younger, someone older who has been writing on this subject, perhaps they thought that coming together they could uh, tackle something like this. Although, as I said, it is quite short, and uh, as you'll point out, it does leave some things out. The first half of the book discusses Charles Darwin, naturally, as well as the philosopher and sociologist uh, Herbert Spencer. Now, he's considered the father of social Darwinism. What does the book get right and wrong about these two men? Well, actually, there's a lot of the uh, their discussion about Darwin and Spencer that is uh, correct, and, and I appreciated a lot of the way they, they dealt with it. They did, for example, uh, point out that Darwin was a racist who promoted racial struggle 
uh, and they did bring out some of what some people would consider as the more seamy side of Darwin's thought in that respect. So they were a little brutally honest in the in that respect. Uh, however, at the same time, they did try to distance Darwin from Spencer in certain ways, and and the way they tried to do this mostly was by claiming that Spencer was a moral realist whose ideas hinged on progress, whereas Darwin was a moral non-realist. That is, that Darwin didn't believe that there was any fixed uh, morality, whereas Spencer did. However, the problem with that view is that it didn't really make a lot of difference in their social views. And we're talking here about social Darwinism. So their social and political views and the policies based on it, it didn't make a lot of difference. And in fact, interestingly, I wrote an essay a number of years back uh, about Darwin and Spencer and their views on laissez-faire social Darwinism, because one of the ways that social Darwinism uh, was being promoted by some thinkers in the late 19th and early 20th century was to promote laissez-faire competition, economic competition and such. Interestingly, Darwin believed that human competition had to continue in perpetuity, whereas Spencer thought that progress was going to eventually result in lower reproductive rates of humans so that they wouldn't have to compete in the future. So Darwin actually thought that the struggle for existence among humans would be eternal, perpetual, continue going on as humans then evolved uh, to higher levels, uh, whereas uh, Spencer believed that the human struggle for existence would one day end. That's interesting. Now, did Spencer come up with the survival of the fittest idea? He uh, coined that term, but the idea was already contained in Darwin. That, and basically, he, he wrote a letter to Darwin in which he said that he thinks that this term actually describes what Darwin was had already written about with natural selection. Darwin did actually use the term later on uh, after Spencer coined it. Okay. Well, chapter 10 of the book is called The Hitler Problem. But the real problem here is that the authors make the untenable assertion that Hitler didn't believe in evolution at all. Where do they go wrong here? Is there any evidence that they read your books on Hitler's ethics and religion? Yeah, this is actually one of the worst parts of the book. And it's largely because they've relied very heavily on the work of Robert Richards, who's a professor of history of science at uh, University of Chicago, who wrote a book called Was Hitler a Darwinian? And, and Richards was specifically trying to uh, refute my position that I've taken in my book From Darwin to Hitler and, and other works. Richards answers his question, was Hitler a Darwinian with a resounding no? He claims Hitler was didn't even believe in evolution. His evidence is pretty flimsy, though, and I've refuted it in various of my works. In fact, my book, Hitler's Ethic, uh, which came out in 2009, which was written before Richard's book, actually refutes Richard's position as it is without even knowing about Richard's position. Richard just ignored a lot of the evidence that I brought forward in that book. Uh, but then in my later book, uh, Hitler's Religion, I actually forthrightly refute Richard's position by showing that there's a huge amount of evidence that Hitler did believe in evolution and that he based a lot of his policies and ideas on Darwinian evolution. If you read Mein Kampf or Hitler's second book, he makes many statements where he, uh, he uses terms like evolution, struggle for existence, struggle for a life, selection, and he actually describes the Darwinian struggle for existence. Even if he doesn't use the word Darwinism, which he doesn't, uh, he describes the process of going on in biology, of the competition that takes place and that bringing about higher levels of evolution in organisms. And his second book is even more explicit on that. The very first chapter is entitled The Struggle for Life, 
a term that Darwin, by the way, also used. It was the synonym for the struggle for existence. And when Hitler opens that chapter in his second book, uh, his first chapter, he describes the Darwinian struggle for existence. Again, he doesn't use the word Darwinism, but he talks about how organisms reproduce faster than their food supply. This causes competition for available resources and for living space, and that makes the struggle for existence among these organisms inevitable. Here's a quotation uh, taken out of that. It says, in the limitation of this living space, this is a quotation by Hitler, he said, lies the compulsion for the struggle for survival, and the struggle for survival in turn contains the precondition for evolution. So Hitler wrote about these things. Also, Hitler's colleagues commented later on that he believed in evolution and gave some pretty uh, specific details. Hitler's secretary, Hitler's publicist, Otto Dietrich, a claim that Hitler believed in evolution. And in Hitler's speeches, we find uh, also many, many examples. And again, I detail this in my books uh, where Hitler talks about his belief in evolution. In fact, one of them here, I'll quote you one real quickly from his uh, table talks. This is from October 24th, 1941. Hitler was talking to his colleagues and he said, quote, there have been humans at the rank at least of a baboon, in any case, for 300,000 years at least. The ape is distinguished from the lowest human, less than such a human is from a thinker like, for example, Schopenhauer, quote closed. So there's massive amount of evidence. This is just a huge, I'm, I've just given just a few tidbits here, but there's a massive amount of evidence that Hitler believed in evolution and that it made a huge difference in his worldview. Wow. Well, so in making this claim, are the authors trying to separate a biological belief in uh, evolution versus the social belief that would accompany it? Is that what they're trying to do here? Well, I think that what they're trying to do here is just kind of a knee-jerk reaction to try to keep Darwin from being associated with Hitler in any way or Hitler being associated with Darwin uh, in any way to sort of, I guess, protect Darwin from this taint. Uh, that's at least the way I uh, see what they're trying to do. Yeah. You say that one of the key problems with this book is what it omits. In this case, substantive discussion of social Darwinism among Darwinian biologists, especially the kind of social Darwinism that justified militarism, racism, and even racial extermination. Who do they leave out in the, in the biology sphere, and why is that important? Well, they leave out uh, quite a number of people. In fact, one of the most conspicuous omissions is Ernst Haeckel, the leading German Darwinian biologist uh, in Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And actually, they do briefly mention Haeckel, but they try to paint him as though he's not a social Darwinist. And so it's really a it's really a misleading characterization of, of Haeckel and his beliefs. The one thing they say, for example is they say that he opposed World War I. Well, Heckel did consider himself a pacifist before World War I, and this doesn't really fit with the sort of picture of social Darwinist militarism, but the reason that Heckel was a pacifist is because he thought that European wars tended to kill off the best and the brightest, the young men who were sort of the best of the next generation, these Europeans. However, Heckel was not a pacifist in relation to colonial wars. He thought that colonial wars were just fine because then you're exterminating these so-called inferior races. So this is classic social Darwinism of believing that there's competition between races and that this leads then to the, the triumph of the Europeans over the uh, indigenous peoples in various parts of the world. Uh, they also forget to say that Heckel uh, changed his mind during World War I and wrote an entire book in which he justified 
German expansionism during the war, which again is sort of classical social Darwinist militarism there. So they omit Heckel as a social Darwinist and even try to imply that he was not a social Darwinist in their brief discussion of him. But it's not just Heckel. They're also, and by the way, in my book From Darwin to Hitler, I talk about a lot of other German biologists who believed in social Darwinism. So it wasn't just Heckel. In fact, the only person that they actually discuss in the German scene as a social Darwinist is Friedrich von Bernhardi, who was a German general. And they sort of paint him as not just being a thoroughgoing Darwinist. They claim that he was influenced by Hegel and other kinds of things. So they even try to distance him from Darwin as well. But it's not just in the German scene. There also were many American biologists and anthropologists in the late 19th and early 20th century who embraced social Darwinist racism. People like Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was a professor of zoology at Columbia University, wrote a foreword to Madison Grant's racist book, The Passing of the Great Race. And if you look in biology textbooks and anthropology textbooks in the early 20th century, scientific racism, which was largely based on Darwinism, uh, was considered textbook science at the time. Now, you also asked about why is that important? The reason it's important is because by focusing, as O'Connell and uh, Roos do in their book, on non-scientists embracing social Darwin, like they talk about Andrew Carnegie and they talk about Teddy Roosevelt and other figures. By focusing on non-scientists, it tends to leave the impression that the people embracing social Darwinism didn't really understand science all that well and such. But the reality was what we call social Darwinists today, the, the scientific racism, militarism, and these kinds of things were being promoted as science by scientists. This was not just some fringe view or some view being taken off just by politicians or industrialists. It was scientists that were promoting these ideas. Now, is this book, uh, could it just be Michael Rue's sort of cleaning house, trying to separate neo-Darwinism from its ugly past? I think that's part of it. And, and there's a very interesting twist, too. And I didn't talk about this very much. I, I, I kind of hinted at it maybe slightly in the pieces that I wrote for Evolution News. But toward the end of the book, they create this contrast between Michael Roos and E.O. Wilson. And they try to create the same contrast there that they create between Darwin and Spencer. So Michael Roos, they claim, is following Darwin, and E.O. Wilson is following Spencer. And so this very dichotomy that they set up at the beginning of the book between Darwin and Spencer, they carry that on to the future, and, and Roos is, plays a key role in all of that, too. So, so Roos is trying to basically, from what I can see here in this book, is trying to defend his position against E.O. Wilson also in this book by casting E.O. Wilson as a Spencerian, and everyone knows today that Darwin is better than Spencer, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the basic trend of knowledge. So uh, Roos, I think, is trying to protect his own academic position as well. Yeah. Well, for listeners who want a more thorough and, frankly, honest exploration of social Darwinism than this little volume offers, which books of yours should they read first? Well, my book From Darwin to Hitler is the one which uh, covers it most extensively. Uh, it covers just the German scene, to be sure. And unfortunately, it's rather expensive right now. It's published by an academic press, and so the price tag's a little hefty. My book, The Death of Humanity, that came out in 2016, does cover this issue some 
from a little different angle, I'm looking there at the way that Darwinism devalued human life in one of the chapters there. It's not the entire book. There's one chapter called Creative from Animals, but there are actually some of the other chapters that deal with materialism and positivism and, and such also have ramifications for these the issues as well. So The Death of Humanity is a much less expensive volume, actually, and it covers a lot more territory than just uh, Darwinism as well, if you're interested in uh, other issues relating to ways that secular philosophies have impacted uh, the value of human life. Awesome. Good stuff. Well, Richard, thank you for your insight today. Thanks for having me. I think this is most helpful as we probe into our history and really get to understand that ideas have consequences. Well, for more of Richard Weikart's work on social Darwinism and the impact of Darwin on history, visit www.darwintohitler.com. That's darwintohitler.com. Get more episodes of ID the Future by subscribing on your favorite podcasts platform or by visiting idthefuture.com. I'm Andrew McDermott for ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.